Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Happy Friday, everyone. It's been a hot week here in SF. On Tuesday, the mercury hit 100 degrees at Strictly VC HQ. And two days later, we're still reeling from the heat. That and all of the that is going on in the market. Much to our amazement, though, startups are still getting funded. Each day in the newsletter, we compile a list of startups that have logged new rounds. And the lists keep getting longer and longer. 30 to 40 companies a day seems to be the new norm. Is this just a lagging indicator, or are VCs still spending like drunken sailors? Seems like the latter to me. This week, Connie talks to Frederick Court of Felix Capital, which just raised its fourth fund of $600 million and now manages over $1.2 billion, about the competition for deals in Europe, the importance in maintaining a strong culture at a VC firm, and the prospects for companies like SellerX that built their businesses by rolling up Amazon sellers. But first, the news. It's no secret that the startup climate has lost some of its luster. In addition to massive layoffs at a whole host of tech companies, the IPO window has all but shut. Thus, the timing of Taraj Parang's book on optimizing one's startup for acquisition seems oddly prescient. Parang says his book, entitled Exit Path, How to Win the Startup Endgame, is aimed at shattering the myth that selling a startup rather than going public, is somehow equivalent to selling out. Parang, who is currently COO of Uber spin-out Serve Robotics and an operating advisor at PairVC, has sat on both sides of the table and in several different seats. As a corporate lawyer, a VC, a corp dev exec, a founder of multiple startups, and someone who has participated in literally hundreds of M&A transactions, he has experienced this bias to being acquired firsthand. In the past, he says... Many entrepreneurs have been afraid of talking about potential acquirers because they were worried it would scare off VCs. It's just a mindset, right? It just kind of could send a wrong signal that my mindset is building something quick to flip and not building something that I can actually put my energy behind that I'm willing to stick with through thick and thin and go through all the ups and downs to make it work. So that is the sellout or the mercenary mentality that a lot of investors are scared by. And they have a knee-jerk reaction, I would say, to any conversations about exits because it rings some alarm bells in their subconscious. Still, Parang has noticed a distinct change in the way startups are now evaluating their options. What you hear pretty much everywhere these days is have 24 months of runway, right? And one way to have that runway is, of course, by raising more money. But right now is the most expensive time to raise money for startups because valuations are so depressed. So the natural alternative is to actually have your customers foot the bill and have unit economics that actually generate profits for you, go towards the bottom line. So a lot of startups and big companies too, even folks like Uber in their quarterly reports are talking about free cash flow. You know, FCF is now the, the talk of town rather than growth. Focusing on free cash flow is a great way to stay alive, 
But Parang also believes that startups are emerging from an IPO fever dream and starting to notice that M&A is often a much more practical way to get paid. The past couple of years was just an over-exuberance, and I think it perhaps gave a false sense of how easy it is to go public, especially with a number of these SPAC deals. It just seemed like that any company, even if they're pre-revenue, can now have a shot at going public. I think a lot more rationality has set in. It will probably swing back to the middle, hopefully. But the key statistical takeaway, I would say, is that for every IPO, there are 30 acquisitions each year. And that's over the past three, four years. So even in the heyday of the IPOs, there are so many more acquisitions that happen. So that is the much more likely success scenario for a startup than an IPO. In Exit Path, which is available on August 2nd at fine bookstores near you, Prang recommends stack ranking potential acquirers from the get-go and looking for ways to build meaningful business ties that will lead to a potential acquisition. In his seven years on the corporate development team at GoDaddy, he noticed that GoDaddy generally only acquired startups that had been doing business with GoDaddy's operating units for at least a year. Of course, a lot of this is easier said than done, as Parang readily admits. But first and foremost, he argues, startups would be well advised to reconsider the typical Silicon Valley hero mentality of taking a company public at all costs. In this climate, that kind of attitude can be a recipe for disaster. Up next, Connie's conversation with Frederick Court of Felix Capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. Understanding customer perspectives, competitive landscapes, and drivers behind company data shouldn't be so tedious. That's why leading VCs, angels, and corporate development teams rely on Tegas to get up to speed and find answers to critical questions about companies. The Tegas platform surfaces hard-to-get qualitative insights and helps you set up customized expert calls, all on a single modern platform. With the largest database of proprietary content in the private markets, Tegas provides insights no other provider can, including access to early-stage startups, undiscovered competitors, and more. Sign up for your free trial today at tegas.com slash trial slash strictlyvc. That's tegas.com slash trial slash strictlyvc. And now, Connie's conversation with Frederick Court of Felix Capital. Felix's portfolio includes companies that have now gone public like Farfetch and Deliveroo, as well as the likes of So Rare, Papier, Juni, Coco Melon owner Moonbug, Scooter Startup Dot, and Goop. Here's that conversation. So, Frederick, it's so nice to talk to you. We were just talking offline about how we haven't actually seen each other in person in far too long. And you were mentioning that you don't really even travel to the Bay Area all that much anymore, that when you come to the U.S., you're more focused on visiting New York and L.A., which 
is kind of interesting. When do you think that shift happened? In fact, the shift happened pretty quickly. When we closed and announced our first fund exactly seven years ago in early uh, 2015, within uh, 12 months of our launch, we had backed a couple of companies in, in the US, but we tended to be in LA and with a presence in New York often. Right, right. That's great. I wanted to talk just for a minute about competition in Europe. That scene, as you mentioned, has really matured to such an extent that Sequoia, Bessemer, Lightspeed, General Catalyst, among others, have opened offices there or made expansions in the last 18 months or so. How, how has that impacted your work, I guess, more you know, locally? And overall, it's a great news for the entrepreneurs in Europe. It's a reflection of the evolution of the market over here. We've seen more ambition, more talent, obviously more capital in the past few years, and then more successes of people who have gone from building local champions to building global champions. So the likes of Spotify, of, of you know, Farfetch, where I was you know, fortunate to be involved uh, from day one as uh, the first investor there, but seeing those entrepreneurs uh, that had the ambition to have really a big impact in their sector and thinking way beyond not only their local borders, but also the European borders. So as a result, you've seen the great performance of European venture capital and with so much talent, more capital coming in with a few firms that you mentioned, but also people coming from Asia, from Middle East, other sources of capital as well with the crossover funds coming. Yes, more, more competition, but more options as well for farmers. I read that a lot of these firms were having trouble hiring. There's two reasons. First, there weren't a lot of people or maybe enough people with general partner experience in Europe. And also the mindset is ostensibly still different with US VCs focused, at least until very recently, on growth and European VCs more focused on removing risk. Does any or all of that ring true to you? Uh, I think all of this is true. I mean, the reality is that we are in an industry where to measure success, it takes time. It's quite a small community. So there's a lot of you know, great emerging talent, but with maybe fewer data points in terms of success. And uh, as a result, uh, yes, it's probably been harder for people to hire. The other thing uh, as well is, yes, there is a growth component versus early stage, but I think there is probably a sense from many of the investors in Europe, they did not necessarily just waiting to be hired by American firms. They very much want to build local firms. When we launched Felix, we've seen tremendous support from friends in the US as well, connecting us to LPs because I had zero LP connections when I started Felix, but also a lot of local support where people wanted to nurture local co-investors. So stating the obvious light speed poached Paul Murphy from North Zone, Sequoia pretty famously poached Luciana Liaxandru from Excel. I was just wondering, have you lost anyone in the talent wars or been approached yourself? I've got no doubt that, you know, every, and we talk quite openly about it, that many people in our team are getting calls. Candidly, the hardest thing about being, running a venture firm is team building, because as you just pointed out, talent is scarce. And then we have a certain way of doing things. Culture is very important. And particularly at Felix, we have very much a culture of we versus I. And typically, I think, you know, in fact, we have some a few great people who came and joined our firm then moved on with great success. But the people we stayed and people who, are, who joined more recently, they are very much attracted by this team culture. We are not just a platform where we have capital and, and investor XYZ as an allocation. We pick our battles together. We win them together. We lose them together. We are not pointing fingers uh, at people. Uh, and that's a, a culture that I very much wanted from the beginning of trying to avoid having a collection of individuals doing deals 
deals in the world is the world we we really dislike to use, uh, and we try to collectively find the best entrepreneurs who can we can partner with, who, can, who are aligned with our thinking in terms of opportunities, in terms of how to do things as well. And we can also think long term. The word alignment is very important. So my job is to make sure we retain alignment with the key talents on the Felix platform, retain alignment with the entrepreneurs we work with, and obviously with our uh, investors if we keep on doing our job and delivering good returns. One thing I thought you said that was interesting was you mentioned that there's full transparency into your LP base across the firm. I guess some firms are probably having to feel kind of cautious about this, given that so many people are spinning out on their own. So I don't know if, if that was sort of the, the point that you were trying I to mean, make. Often the, the LP relations is uh, mm. something that's totally uh, guarded from the rest of the team. Yeah. We've been very open with our investors to you know, connect them to different team members well, to get to know them and also for them to validate uh, what I've just described to you, the fact that we work in a transparent way, the fact mm-hmm. that we are making decisions together. I personally got exposed to that part of our business quite late. It's a very important part, which doesn't get discussed as much on the fundraising side of things. And when you start from scratch, obviously, if you're joining you know, some of the large uh, firm that you mentioned, many of the partners or, or investors will not get involved into a fundraising immediately because those firms are like machines in terms of fundraising and they've had a very strong past performance. When you start from scratch, often the first maybe six months, year, two years would be essentially focused on fundraising. Mm-hmm. So it's a key a skill set and we want our LPs to know the team and vice versa. And it's a choice to do this way. I just was looking at your portfolio before we jumped on this call and thought we could talk about some of your portfolio companies quickly. One of which is very interesting to me because it's one of the biggest roll-up companies in Europe, Cellarex. We're seeing so many of these third parties that aggregate Amazon brands not doing well suddenly. Thrasio has been in the headlines. I think there's something like 99 other roll-up startups. And so many things have happened to kind of conspire suddenly to prove problematic for them. Rising interest rates, they all rely heavily on debt, supply chain issues, these on and off lockdowns in China. What does a company like that do? I think I'd read that Seller X at least has stopped making acquisitions. How do you get this company through this period, I guess? It's a good question. I think we've done a few platform plays in our portfolio. Moonbug was one on media on top of YouTube. Celerex is doing this on top of Amazon. In this case, we invested at the very beginning, a pre-launch, back in two founders that seemed really strong, that we didn't know very well, but we do. We built a strong bond. And the execution has been remarkable or went through a big phase of boom. There is definitely a phase of digestion of just making so many acquisitions so fast. And I think that's what they are working on at the moment, so it's been slower on the acquisition front. The opportunity to build on Amazon is definitely a very attractive one, especially with a model where you can cherry pick some independent brands that are trading profitably and boost their business. I think there was a race to top line. And then at some point, the quality filters were lower and people were just trying to buy what was available at growing prices. We're going to see a readjustment. We'll definitely see some consolidation. And we always saw Celerex, which is a consolidator, as a company that which at some point will also be a part of consolidation, whether at that point it will be a public company or private company, who, who knows? We have two very ambitious founders there. So I think it's a time for a company like Celerex, but also other companies in our portfolio or in our ecosystem to digest the growth 
to look around, look at the cost base, look at the talents and uh, focus uh, on the past to profit- profitability. The way they operate is fundamentally quite healthy because all of the companies have been aggregating were all profitable businesses. So there is no scope for having a very healthy business there. Candidly, I think over time, the question will be, how do you value those companies? What's the quality of the brands? What's the quality of the earnings? Is there one, two or three hero brand under that umbrella that can drive the business, which they can potentially take outside of Amazon as well, maybe uh, through uh, their own Shopify dedicated site, or maybe even in retail or wholesale. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see uh, almost now uh, ironically rebalancing the companies that are overperforming on consumer today are companies that are built with different pillars online, but also wholesale and physical retail. Physical retail and good retail is back. So that will be also an opportunity for their best uh, assets on the platform. Another company you mentioned, I think you said you've invested in them five times. I think it's really interesting. Measurery, yeah. jewelry brand for women who maybe aren't interested in the fine jewelry market quite yet or expensive fine jewelry, but also don't want another piece of costume jewelry. I think I saw the tagline was fine jewelry for every day, which I think was smart. I'd read at the end of 2020 that it was planning an IPO sometime soon. And I'm just wondering where do things stand today? Does a company like this go public? Does it become a line for a bigger jewelry company? The jewelry industry is a fascinating industry because it's been around for thousands of years. So if there's one thing that's not going to change, is the love by uh, women and men, although it's more of a woman market, but for beautiful things and for jewelry. We found the company in 2017 through Instagram, actually. At the time, we were looking for new brands that were connected to young female millennials who were modern brands relevant for them. It was really early. We invested in 2018 and led the Series A there. The company is uh, based in Toronto. It's got an amazing female founder, Nora, who has exhibited remarkably well, but also very ambitious. So when you look at maybe a peer that's very different in terms of brand value and aesthetic, Pandora was at some point a brand that was worth 10 to 15 billion euros with thousands of points of sales. And it was relevant to pretty much across the globe. So that's the scale of opportunity that's available for a modern jewelry brand offering fine jewelry at affordable prices and importantly, fine jewelry by women for mm-hmm. women. The tone of voice is very different from you know, the rest of the jewelry industry, which typically targets more men buying for women. And there it's very, it's very different. So eventually, could, could it be a public company? That's the vision that Nura has mm-hmm. to remain independent. And now they are growing online, increasingly through stores across the US. We only have, I think, eight or nine stores at the moment. There is no reason why we couldn't have 20, 30, 40, 50 and more stores across the US about the next few years. And they're also expanding uh, across Europe, starting with the UK, with the first store doing really well here. And it's, uh, it's been a pleasure working with them. And the good brands eventually should be very healthy, profitable businesses with people coming back again and again, great unit economics. And, uh, we think that Majuri has the potential to become a, an iconic brand for its generation. Well, Frederick, it was so nice to see you and to visit with you. And I hope that I actually get to see you in person before not too terribly long. Uh, absolutely. I look forward to this. Hopefully we start traveling more again and make it to the Valley and I'll let you know. That would be but great. Thank you. Thank you, Frederick. Take care. That's it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and special thanks to this week's sponsor, Tegas. Have a great weekend, 
and we'll see you back here on Friday, July 8th.